Welcome back to See, Hear, Feel. Today, I'm very excited to be speaking with Dr. Mary Dahm, MA, PhD. She received her MA from University of Constance in Germany and her PhD in Applied Linguistics from Macquarie University in Australia. Dr. Dahm is driven by her commitment to conducting innovative translational research at the nexus of applied linguistics and health services research. Her goals are to improve diagnosis and patient safety through research in health communication and consumer engagement. She is passionate about patient-centered health research with expertise in qualitative and mixed methods approaches in health communication and health services research. Her research focuses on person-centered healthcare delivery, health communication, health information, infrastructure for vulnerable patient groups, and ways clinicians interact with health information technology in the diagnostic process. Her work includes a wonderful recent article published just this year titled More Than Words, Interpersonal Communication, Cognitive Bias, and Diagnostic Errors. And the link to that article is in the show notes. And really that article is the way that I first got introduced to Dr. Dom, and I feel very lucky that she agreed to speak with me today. Hi, thank you for having me, Christine. Thank you for being here. I never really thought about communication between me and a patient. Not that I'm pointing fingers, but I'm not sure that I was ever taught it either. It's quite a tricky field. I feel the best way to really do it is to have it integrated across the entire medical degree where you have communication as not a side or soft skill, but it is a core skill. Like it is a skill that you need to practice medicine and that you sort of get little tutorials along the way where you approach different topics and it can be usually it's it's things like breaking bad news that's the the one that most doctors know they had a particular sort of um, class on that but it, it it starts with history taking it starts with listening how do you do that how do you show that you're listening attentively it's the nodding it's the um the yeses it's the trying not to interrupt too early there's these famous studies that looked at how long patients actually get to speak. In 1984, um, one of the first studies to look at that, they said it was 18 seconds the patient gets to speak until or before they're interrupted. And I think the latest one that I can remember is 2019, and that was 11 seconds. So it's getting even less. And, and interestingly, there have been other studies not just looking at how early do patients get interrupted, but also looking at, well, how long would they actually talk if you let them talk? And they don't talk that long. So on average, they talk about a minute and a half. Other sort of patient-centered strategies like um, setting expectations or agenda setting at the start, where you really go, so why are you here today? And when they told you the first thing, you ask them then, and is there anything else that you might want to discuss today as well? And they can tell you the second or the third thing. You have then an agenda and you can, can with the patient collaborate to identify, well, which of the three things for you is most pressing? Because I fear I might not have time to get through all of them today. So I really want to focus on the one that concerns you the most. Think about when you are the patient. Like you get there and you know you have your set time and your slot and you might have structured other things in your day around this slot. The time is is a crucial resource for both the patient and the clinicians. When we look at communication we find all these sort of trainable skills and that's really what it is it's like becoming aware and increasing this awareness of all these different little things that you can do that combined really improve patient safety and quality of care and patient satisfaction in communicating with the doctors 
What else do you think optimizes communication? So really listening and and figuring out in terms of patient-centeredness as well, like what really affects this person's quality of life? What are they really afraid of? And often, sometimes they might not say that straight away, and it takes a little while to sort of build up that rapport. Even if you only have 15 minutes, they might be much more open with you at towards the end of a consultation than they were at the start. And if you show them in between that you really have been listening, that really strengthens this this relationship as well. So I think for me, that's one of the most important things that, that doctors can do is really not just listen in terms of letting people talk, but really getting to the bottom of who is this person that sits across from me? What are they afraid of? How can I make them feel safer? How can I make them feel heard? I think that's so important because that touches on having emotional intelligence mm. of being aware that the patient has emotions, especially I think a lot of times fear in a healthcare setting. Patients often are, I think, afraid yes. of something. In order to address that, we do need to be able to make them safe. I've recently heard that actually instead of guessing at someone's emotion because we're often wrong, it's... <laughs> probably better to just ask, you know, say, I think you're feeling this or yes. are you feeling this? So I guess that's another way to get at it. What do you think about just directly asking a patient, as long as, you know, you have the relationship to do it, are you scared of something or what are you afraid mm. of? Can you just go ahead and yes. ask that? Yeah, I think especially if you're in in sort of a, a diagnostic environment, like if, if, it's a, if it's a consultation about diagnosis, People often, rightly so, Google their symptoms and they want to know what, what might be wrong with them. And they can find all sorts of ridiculous things when they do that. So they might come with like intermittent spotting, for example, and you might not know that their grandmother died because they had cervical cancer or or something like that. So people might come and they have all these conceptions in their head about what, what the scariest thing it, in their mind um could be and if you don't ask you can't never sort of get to the point unless they tell you right away and it also is a really good opportunity for for you to sort of say how the diagnostic process works because patients often aren't aware that it's not just a, a, an idea of coming presenting here's my history and now I get a diagnosis it's usually sort of a meandering evolving process where patients might need a couple of visits, they might need additional tests, and it might not be as quick to sort of tell them what they have. You might be quick in telling them what they not have, um, what they don't have, uh, but not as quick in, in what they actually have. So you can take this as an opportunity to say, hey, there, there are various things that I, I think this might this maybe could be that they include this and that. Is there anything that you are really concerned about that you wanted to have particularly checked out and that's a really reasonable thing to do and and nothing that anyone should be sort of holding back or scared to ask them directly because that's what what's happening inside of them like they will be sitting there and they will have this nagging thing of cancer or cervical cancer or stroke or whatever they might have had in their family um, and that might have started with a tiny insignificant system uh, symptom in their in their relatives or their friends and they will have that niggling sort of in the back of their head and if you address that straight away I don't think anyone would 
would of be offended by being asked if there's anything in particular that that scares you. Based on your linguistic analysis of different healthcare communications, do you know what patients think of since you just described the diagnostic process as being meandering? And I agree with that. Sometimes it's not clear. It takes a couple mm-hmm. visits or even unfortunately years sometimes before yeah. a diagnosis really declares itself. How do patients respond when the doctors do actually communicate that uncertainty? Mm. There's a lot of research on that, and there isn't a clear-cut way that it goes. So some really like it. Some patients really sort of see it as as an expression of, of the doctor's competence to sort of admit when they don't know something. Others sort of probably feel a bit more distanced from their doctors when it happens like I've come here I wanted to know something you can't even tell me what's wrong why did I even bother so it it sort of cuts both ways what usually happens to mitigate patients sort of feeling feeling that their doctor is less competent again is if they combine if the doctors combine expressing that uncertainty and sharing that uncertainty with other sort of patient-centered strategies so if they combine it with reassuring or empathy statements if they really show they are listening like i know you're really concerned about this and i wish i could tell you what what it is that you're having but we need to run some more tests or i can only exclude this one for now and and we'll need to follow up on on some other things before we might be able to tell you what what's going on so really reassuring listening and 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 using this empathy that people often sort of say oh it's really hard to learn you either have it or you're not like they also say you're either a good communicator or you're not and that's not really true like non-verbal stuff like sitting or standing a really cool study I, I find that's a really cool study where where they checked what the perceptions were between patients and doctors whether the doctor was sitting or standing so they had the doctor go in and the doctor was sitting next to them for just one minute and patient felt that the doctor had spent five minutes with them and then they had the other sort of control group they had the doctor go in and they stood next to the patient's bed for 90 seconds and the patients thought they only spent four minutes with them so in reality when the when the doctor sat it's 30 seconds less than when they were standing patients perceived that they spent a whole minute longer than when they were standing up so that's that's insane to me like that's such a tiny little thing and and often it comes also it comes down to really what perceptions are so like i said you come across, like if you use a lot of unexplained jargon, you come across as, as really time poor. Because if you had time, you would have time to explain what they are. If you had time to sit down, that, that again gives the perception of, yes, they have time to spend time with me and really sort of be with me rather than sort of standing and hovering at the end or at the side of the bed. So they're just sort of little things, little sort of approachability things that you can do to manage the impression that a patient has on you and then they're not necessarily things that will take you longer it's also like I said before whether you allow a bit of room or time for chit chat or to listen to to like personal stories rather than sort of just being on your clinical agenda and really being controlling on on what the topic really is or whether it is a bit of a, a back and forth and, and making the patient feel comfortable. So small talk can really work well in that respect. A bit of humor can work well. So those those are some of the things that the doctors might be able to do. And 
Yeah. Well, I like how you started off with, since I asked for simple tips, the approachability ones. Yeah. Because I agree with you. I have found that really, I think the way that the human, including mine, the way that the mind works is we make these snap judgments right away, really. So it is really within probably the first, if I'm meeting a new patient, it really is within the first seconds that they're judging whether I'm listening to them or not. Mm. So I think you're right that that those initial seconds really do set the tone. And so if I go in really thinking about the agenda, thinking about connecting with them and listening to them from the outset, I have experienced that you're right. It really does make a difference. Yeah. Those are little things that people might not really consider sort of, are you, if you're in a hospital setting, are you holding a clipboard or are you holding a tablet? Are you engaging with that? Are you? Do you look like you're engaging with that clipboard or that tablet more than you are with the patient? Or if you're in a consultation room, is there a big desk between you? Or are you sitting on the corner of the desk where there's nothing really beside you? Are you typing while you're talking? There's other little things that people don't really think about is where, like I find this fascinating, like where are your feet pointing? So if you're sitting at a desk and the feet are pointing towards the, the monitor and the, and the keyboard, that sort of indicates that you're more oriented to that. But if you're sitting sideways with, the, with your feet patient facing the patient and you're still typing, the patient feels like you're more invested into them. And there's other things as well, like in terms of little tips, something that I call meta talk really works well as um, as well. So that is when oftentimes doctors will do things that is that are natural to them. Like they look up tests results or they do things on a computer or they, they're thinking about something in particular, but voicing that can really, really help make patients understand. So and other, rather than just sort of be silently tapping away on your on your um, keyboard, when you say, oh, I'm just looking up the last results that we get, give me a second, the system's sometimes a bit slow. That really just tells the patient what you're doing rather than sort of sitting there and silent and wondering, mm, now I'm sitting here, no one's really looking at me or interacting with me. Same thing goes for a technique that I've, I've seen a couple of doctors do is recording consultation letters with the patient still in the room where you go, as you usually would, you have your dictaphone or your, your digital um, dictaphone online nowadays and you sort of just start dictating the letter. You can look at the patient while you're doing it. So you see if you get anything wrong. You see whether they feel what just happened in the consultation is really represented in that letter as well. So that's a really powerful thing as well and empowering the patient because they're becoming involved. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Do you have any final thoughts? I, I think it's really important for clinicians to become aware what effective communication can really do in healthcare, can do in terms of patient safety, can do in terms of diagnostic safety, can do in terms of quality of care. Really what I found resonates a lot with, with clinicians is if I tell them that the more effective your communication is, the less likely you are to get any complaints or litigation or adverse events. Um, or even if you have an adverse event that's not necessarily your fault, if your communication is good, if you're related to your patient, if you listened, if you build good rapport um, and trust, you're much less likely to get complaints or malpractice claims or lawsuits against you. 
if you feel like I can't really tell what I'm doing right or wrong, is to record yourself, obviously asking the patient, ask someone to sit in with you in a consultation so they can sort of observe how you engage with patients. And oftentimes that can really be a really sort of helpful exercise. And if you do it sort of reciprocally, you can help each other out and you don't sort of feel awkward because, but reflective practice also needs to have these triggers of awareness. And if you don't know where they are by themselves, it's often really hard to find. So I feel sharing this with other clinicians or sharing it with patients really, really can make a difference and, and, and then help everyone in the long run. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me.